Hello, and welcome to another episode of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring. This week, we'll be talking to Camilla Costa, a journalist working for the BBC. As you'll hear, Camilla had a pretty varied career before landing there. She's just started working in London for the BBC as an interactive and data journalist, but before that, she worked for the publication in Sao Paulo. Even though you'll probably not have heard of her, you should have. Camilla is responsible for breaking the story nationally and internationally of the Zika virus outbreak that was causing birth defects. As she explains, she spotted it early and realized it was going to be a very big deal. I first became aware of Camilla because she's a friend of my wife's from when they did a journalism course or traineeship at one of Brazil's largest publishers. Camilla appeared on BBC television talking about Zika, and my wife was like, hey, that's my friend. I'm not going to get on a soapbox and say journalists should be more recognized than they are. We are more recognized than many, many professions. But Camilla should be someone you know. I met her a couple times in Brazil, but this is the first time I've talked to her about journalism. So here it is, my conversation with Camila Costa. So first of all, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, maybe we could just set the scene. If you could tell me where you are, what time it is, um, what kind of week you've had. I am in London right now. I'm in Brixton, where I live. It is 20 past six in the afternoon. I mean, it is London, right? So I think it is sort of the kind of weather that most people would expect. So it's a nice little cold, cloudyish day. I have I have had a, a nice week actually because I've been working on a project that I really like that I really I'm really excited about. So I've basically been interviewing a lot of physicists, astronomers, uh, you know, talking about stuff that I really like to talk about. So in this in this sense it's been quite a nice week at work. And well, what is my life here apart from work, right? Um <laughs> Well, no, I mean, apart from that, it's been an okay week, but yeah, most of my life is work at this point because I've moved because of work. Okay. I actually have moved in December, but yeah, the past two months in the end have been the actual moving to a, to a flat, moving to my, my own place and really getting settled with the day to day at work. Cool. And about that story, I'm assuming you can't say exactly what it is before it's published, but I assume it's like a feature story. It uh, is like a, a feature story. Feature? I mean, I can talk about it a bit, I suppose. It's going in the end of May, if everything goes accordingly. But yeah, it's a feature story about the 100 years since the solar eclipse that proved the theory of relativity. Oh, interesting. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the data that actually proved Einstein's theory of general relativity was made was obtained in brazil in a small town in brazil wow so so yeah that's that's what it's about that's pretty cool yeah. you you'll do the story without coming back to brazil i imagine though yeah unfortunately i mean i would love to actually go but so far it's not it's still not in the in the prospects but i would love to go okay well yeah sounds like a very interesting story um i don't think people know about that yeah, it's a subject I love, so. Um, so uh, I've usually been starting with people like way back at the beginning. So um, my first question that I'd like to start with is just uh, where are you from? I am from Bahia, which is a state in the northeast of Brazil. 
I am very biased, but I would say it's the best state in the northeast of Brazil. <laughs> but well, yeah, it's a great state in the northeast of Brazil, anyway. And it's a it's probably the biggest state in the northeast of Brazil. It the rest is, are all yeah. It's definitely the biggest. It's definitely the biggest. And are you from Salvador? Or are you from another town? I'm from Feira de Santana, which is sort of the second city in the state. It's pretty close to Salvador, actually. It's like one hour uh, by car. So, and yeah, and I have been living in Salvador for, for 10 years or so before I went to Sao Paulo to live there. So, you know, it's it's Feira de Santana slash Salvador because I feel like I grew up in Salvador in a way. Sure, sure. And can you just tell us a little bit about what uh, it's Feira de Santana uh, is like and what it was like growing up there? Feira de Santana is very interesting, to be honest, because it's a city that was born out of a, uh, how do I say, it's a commercial post and in the colonial period in Brazil, which is basically, uh-huh. how do I say this? The shepherds, actually, who went with the cat around that area stopped over there in a farm to you know to to eat or to whatever trade things etc so that became a city so because of that heritage in a way it's a very sort of commerce city it's huh. this huge um there's there's a name for that in english what we call in portuguese entroncamento rodoviário which is basically to say it's sort of this huge place with a lot of exits that you have to go through if you want to keep riding north and that means it's a, it's a town with 38 known exits so it's good for commerce it's also good for drug trafficking <laughs> so it becomes it becomes quite a problem meaning it's a small town which has sort of some of the problems of a big town uh and in, in so the, it's on the yeah. coast and no, it's so not on the coast. It's on the countryside. Coast. It's mainly cars and trucks, really, which is in the end most of Brazil's, the way that most of Brazil's logistic and product transport happens, right, sure. nowadays. Now, what was it like growing up there for you? It was good. That, that, again, it's a small town in a way, right, in terms of mentality. My parents are doctors, so they knew a lot of people. Because of that, I knew a lot of people. But at the same time, I can't say it's sort of idyllic, small town, like, oh, I grew up playing in the streets and etc. I can't say that. Yeah, I mean, it was good. It was interesting. I had good friends. I had great. I have great memories of there, actually. My parents still live there, my sister as well. So I go quite often. You said your parents are doctors. And you're a journalist. I'm just curious if you ever felt the pull to be a doctor or if your parents, you know, encouraged journalism or how how that all came about. I have definitely felt a pull because I liked the sciences. Actually, I wanted Uh to be a biologist. And, you know, the this is something that has always called me. I don't think I ever wanted to be a doctor, even though I'm very interested in, in science and medicine and in health. But mm-hmm. if I ever felt the pull, oh yes, my parents did not want me to be a journalist. They actually <laughs> tried to convince me to do law because obviously there's this whole idea that, you know, first of all, you won't make money uh, being a journalist, mm-hmm. which is not wrong. And second of all, that, you know, you're going to be someone's employee for the rest of your life. So that was definitely a pressure. But I think, yeah, at one point when I was in the BBC already and they came here to London to visit me and they saw the BBC, I think they finally understood that I, you know, could be doing something interesting with my life. (laughs) You've made it. You've been able to feed yourself and, you you know, you. Yeah. Not in the streets. I've made a career out of it. So was there anything because in Brazil, 
it's like Europe. You've got to pick what you're going to study when you go in, and basically it's that. It's not like uh, American University where you go in and kind of figure things out. So you must have picked journalism coming out of high school and going into college. And was there what led you to pick that? Actually, I think I decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was 13, and it was mainly because of National Geographic. I was also I was always a big National Geographic fan and reader. My mother was as well, so that's that's who I you know, learn to like National Geographic with. That was mostly the reason. That was the main reason. But yeah, you have to pick. So I chose communication with a specific degree in journalism. And it is a shame that we can't sort of pick and choose other disciplines in the way because I would have loved and I still think that there's a lot more we should be able to study even if we want to be journalists. The good thing for me was that while I was in the university, it's that's UFBA, right? It's the Federal University of Bahia. I mm-hmm. they had this bilateral program, foreign exchange student program with a lot of universities. So I went to Spain to study in the University of Santiago de Compostela. And over Mm -hmm. there, it's a bit more pick and choose. So Mm -hmm. I took astronomy, I took economy, I took psychology, which was super important. And I wish I had that opportunity over there in Brazil. That's that's interesting that National Geographic is what kind of put you onto it, because that's very different. I feel like I don't hear that from a lot of like American journalists. I think a lot of people, especially kids, you look at that and you don't really realize it's, I don't know, that it's being produced by journalists. I don't know, like my grandfather always, he had a huge National Geographic collection. I never put it together. It didn't spark journalism in me. That had happened later. So that's, you've been interested in kind of the nature science end of it for a long time yeah in the end i realized i mean later on when i actually went to the newsroom to the small newsroom of national geographic in brazil and they you know it was basically three people and they Mm -hmm. said you know what in the end what actually gets published in 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 the brazilian national geographic will be stories that photographers pitch or even scientists and i was like yeah bummer should have been a scientist then because that was the other option yeah in the end just sort of i wanted to be someone who reported on science on discoveries on people i think this uh-huh. is what i mostly i was mostly attracted to the possibility of seeing people and and discovering new places it's it is romantic and it's kind of a cliche but it's yeah that's really what National Geographic says to me. Now, I think uh, it's always romantic in one way or another, how most journalists yeah. get into yeah. it. You, you went to the National Geographic office much later, I'm assuming. This was... Yeah. Yeah. This were. was... Yeah. This is when I was in Sao Paulo already. I went to Sao Paulo to do the Abril uh, journalism course, which is this... Abril, for those who don't know, the Grupo Abril was sort of Brazil's largest magazine publisher. It is not Brazil's... I suppose it's not nowadays. Maybe it is still, but it has fallen quite a bit. But yeah, so it was Brazil's largest magazine publisher. And I went to do this course there. And they were the ones who published the National Geographic in Brazil. They still are. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, so I went to their newsroom to see how it was and to, you know, offer my services and, you know, see what they what they were looking for and what they needed. Yeah, Abrio went bankrupt last year. I mean, they're going through bankruptcy, so it's kind of unclear what's going to happen with yeah. um, all their magazines, I think. I guess I would compare it to, like, Condé Nast. Exactly. Just since I've been interviewing mostly Americans, British people, what, what, what was a Brazilian journalism education? like and do you think it prepared you well to be a journalist oh wow wow this is a big conversation i was actually having this conversation with a couple of colleagues in the past days well i think it varies a lot from university to university right my university had a very sort of communication heavy theoretical approach so we learned a lot about theories of communication you know and mm -hmm. frankfurt school and criticism and works of art and etc. And a little less about the practical day-to-day -day of journalism. On the other hand, my, and again, in the Federal Universities of Brazil, it also varies a lot from semester to semester or from year to year, because since the funding is always problematic in some semesters or in some years, you you are able to do a lot of things, a lot of practical projects, because there is funding guaranteed and all the equipment works and everything <laughs> is in place. And then in the next year, you know, the, the next class that comes after you is not able to get anything done. So that happens a lot. In my class, I think, was you was quite privileged in the sense that we were able to do everything. TV, radio, we basically rebuilt the community radio that the university had. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to do a lot of stuff. So in the end, I think it prepared me well because I, I did have quite a lot of practice. Okay. And I, at the same time, I learned how to think about the act of communicating and about what I was doing, which I think is really important. There's this huge conversation here in Brazil nowadays. Many journalists will tell you that journalism school should prep you for the day-to-day. -day. But I have mm -hmm. the feeling that, you know, you learn the day-to-day -day on the day-to-day. -day. There are stuff you'll only learn when you're in contact with the actual newsmaking. You have to learn how to take a step back and think about what is your goal what are you doing? What are you telling people? What kind of conversation are you stimulating with the kind of news that you're producing? So in this sense, I really liked my education. I really liked going to a, a school that was a bit more theory heavy. Yeah, that's very interesting because I would say, I mean, I was not a journalism major, but I took three classes. I knew a lot of people in the school. I knew more or less how it went. And I've never heard of what the Frankfurt School is, for yeah. example. But it sounds like you also did get a little bit of hands-on experience doing. So you work? Did you work on radio and video and text and everything in in university? Yeah. Well, in Brazil, as a journalist major, you're not allowed to work uh, with the act with actual working papers and an actual journalism job until sure. you've been until you've passed the second year or the fourth semester. Uh -huh. of the university. So I've, I was, most of my work during the university was inside the university because sure. we had our own radio station. And this was amazing in terms of, you know, being completely free because we set up the radio. It was a community radio. 
We set up the programs. We did whatever we wanted at the time we wanted. And people actually listened to us. People actually called us uh-huh. from outside the university. We also had our own newspaper. And obviously in the US, for example, or in the UK, this would be you know, very common. It's not that common in Brazil. So it was great for us to have our own newspaper. We had our own TV show because there is a TV for the university. So in the end, most of the work was in that environment. Did um, you personally work on all these different things? I did. I did. I did. Yes. Oh, well. And uh, I mean, radio, for example, could be anything. It could be news. It could be music. It could be entertainment. What what sort of project did you do for the radio station? I had two programs. One program was about Latin America. It was basically politics and culture in Latin American countries. Uh-huh. So we obviously did music, uh, which was basically showing people what kind of music all the Latin American countries produced, and also politics, what was happening, what was going on. This was a uh-huh. one hour show. And then I had a two hour show with a couple of other friends about cinema only. So we talked about cinema for the entirety of two hours and we played soundtracks, which for us was awesome as well. But yeah, I mean, my passion for radio actually comes from there. I never worked professionally in radio in Brazil. I started doing radio in the BBC actually in the end. And I think because the the way we do radio in Brazil is quite different from what I wanted in a unexpected. But yeah, it is my passion. I really like it. I really like what you can do in radio. Yeah, I like radio. I mean, I'm obviously doing a podcast. Yeah, exactly. I also, I listen to BBC uh, radio every single morning. I listen to the newsroom on my walk to work. I like it a lot. So you you do your university, you get a chance to go to Spain. It seems like you have a very varied experience and you come out and do you go straight into this uh, this Corso Abril, the course at the big publisher or what happens when you graduate? No, be- yeah, before that, right before I graduated, I started working as an intern in Atardi, in Jornal Atardi, which is the, still, I think, the largest newspaper in the region, right in the northeastern region, and it's sure. the largest in Bahia. So I started working there as an intern and then as a as a journalist, and I stayed there for a, at least one year and a half, which was amazing, like one of my best experiences, to be honest, because I was working with friends, with mentors and friends. Some of my best friends from, from the university were in the same team as I was. And we had two amazing uh, editors, two amazing uh, mentors, really. We were able to do a lot of great stuff. We were in the young session and kids section. We did both sort of the teenager supplement and the children's supplement, which, to be honest, is something that no one looked at apart from our readers because we had a big base. You know, we had a big sort of readership uh, Mm -hmm. because the the Jornal Atardi actually also distributed those supplements to public schools all around the state. Uh So for us, it was awesome because our readers actually read what we were doing and gave a lot of feedback. We were chosen actually by Andy, which is this huge sort of Latin American NGO focused on communicating to younger people. We were chosen as the best teenage section of a newspaper in the country, etc. We loved what we did. We wanted to talk about everything. I did a story about terrorism and the Arab oh, wow. world for, you know, seven to 12 year old kids. And, so, you know, yeah, that stuff was awesome. Yeah. It's real news just geared towards 
that age audience, basically. Yeah, and it really opened my eyes. It's in a way, it's what this program that the BBC has called News Round. I'm not sure if you've if you've seen it in the UK. It's huge. It's huh. a it's a it's a news show for kids. It's called News Round, and it's this. It's actual news. They will talk about the Ukrainian the, the war in Ukraine for mm-hmm. young kids, and it's amazing. And it really opened our eyes to that, that, you know, those are many people. They know what's going on. They they hear it from their parents in the dinner table. They hear it from the TV. They know what's going on, but you have to explain it to them, you know, in order to help them understand as much as they can at a given age uh, what is going on. And it was amazing going to talk to those kids in the public schools. We did a lot of that, going to talk to our readers in the public schools and have them explain to us what was happening in the neighborhoods, for example, or in Brazil. It was amazing. I mean, the insights they had were amazing. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, we would get like Time magazine for kids in school and it would come out every week, I think, and it would just be like four pages. But I remember, you know, loving reading that and it would talk about like U.S. politics, but in a way I could understand. And and I really wonder if this that sort of thing still exists anymore. I've, I mean, I haven't checked up with it, but do these sort of teen sections and kids publications still exist? I have no idea. Unfortunately, in Brazil, not much. There was a time, right at the time when I was working in it and I had graduated, that all of the major publications had a kids and or a teenage section. And then, you know, the crisis hit everyone and basically all of those sections closed down, which is a shame. I mean, if you think about France has three kids newspapers, like entirely made for kids, quite impressive. And we don't, it's just a shame. I mean, we stopped really thinking about the people that could actually read, consume our product in the long run. And we were able to, to do a lot of stuff. And in the end, to be honest, I think it sort of opened your eyes to how you have to treat your reader in generals. And I'm not saying just, you know, treat them as kids. It's not that. But it's the fact that life is complicated and the way our societies are organized is complicated. And most of the times people actually don't really know, for example, how government works. So sometimes you have to go back to the basics if you want to help people understand a major crisis or major negotiation. And I think working for kids helped us a lot because sometimes you had to answer stuff like, what does a city councilman does? Right, right. You know, and and it was like, yes, man, I mean, I have to remember that because I haven't even stopped to think about it when I became an adult. Sure, sure. And yeah, you've got to know your audience, right, to that audience. Journalists very easily, when you're reporting about something for a long time, can forget, you know, that not everybody uh, understands certain things. Yeah. Okay, very cool. So you then, after more than a year working there, you you went to this course in Sao Paulo, is that right? Yeah, that's it. I did the 25th course in Abril, so they had been doing it for 25 years, and I think wow. they got up until the 30th or something, or something like that. It stopped now because, you know, as, as we said, Abril, Abril went bankrupt. But yeah, it was this amazing thing, really, because it was just like a big brother of young journalists for an entire month working on huge projects with the largest magazines in the country and with resources. So yeah, it was quite crazy, but it was... 
it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed to be extremely formative for a lot of people. And that's actually, so you in this program, I believe, met my wife. Is that right? I did. I did. We were together in the program. And she has so many friends who are from that era. And I always am shocked that it was only a month. Like, how did people form these connections and how was it so formative for them in only a month? It's crazy. Yeah, as I said, it's it was Big Brother in the sense that, I mean, there were no cameras, as far as I know, filming us. Oh, but, like the reality show Big yeah, Brother. I was, yeah, oh, okay. but yeah, that Big Brother, not the actual book Big Brother. But it was in the sense like that reality show because we were together all day. We worked long hours, like just the longest hours. And as Bibiana your wife and me, many of us had come from different states, from different parts of the country and, you know, had come to try and start living in Sao Paulo and working in Sao Paulo. So that kind of formed us our first sort of support network, really, in Sao Paulo. Those were our first friends there, the people who could, you know, show us the ropes, not only in the city, but in that market for journalists. I think that that helped a lot as well. Sure. And were you working on more magazine stuff, more text stuff, or more TV, video, or what were you doing? It was mostly magazines. So right after I finished the Curso Abril, I started writing for Super Interessante, which is our largest science magazine. So I started writing for them. And then right after that, they called me from Abril and said that they had a post, they had a job in Veja, which is, how would you compare, maybe our Time magazine? Yeah, I would say uh, so. Yeah, Veja is sort of the largest, we call them, you know, sort of general magazine in the countries. So I went to work in Veja, which was a huge thing, right, for someone who had just uh, graduated. So I worked right. in Veja for one year. It was mostly magazine. It was and quite crazy and hard work, but yeah, it was awesome. Well, what did you do for Veja? What was the work like? I worked in Veja was <laughs> quite hectic, uh, not only because it's a huge magazine, it has to deal with the whole country, but also because it is it has quite a specific orientation. Vision is huh. a bit more <laughs> Vision is a bit more center right and at that moment especially it was more of a right wing magazine I'd say. And so some of the subjects were quite difficult to work with in that sense. I worked in a session that did actually three different sessions. We worked on business, on education, uh-huh. and we wrote the Gia Vision, which was basically a section in, in which you could write about anything. So I wrote about, you know, nanotechnology and products and how it was evolving in Brazil. And I worked about children's books. Every single week was a completely different subject, was a completely different story, which was, again, great because I did. I had a lot of sources and I worked with different subjects. But it was also really challenging because every week it was diving into something you didn't know that much about. Interesting. So the politics of it didn't have to enter that much into it because those subject matters, I, I imagine, don't get too political. 
Um, yeah, not always. Exactly. When you, when you got when we got to the education stories and the business stories, then the politics got a lot more in the way, and it obviously became harder. How how did that uh, present itself? Just your editors would disagree with your take on certain things. Yes, they would disagree with our take, or they would want to basically impose, and I would say a take. In Veja, it happened a lot that you know you as the as the producer as the reporter would do the story, but the actual final text would be heavily okay. editorialized, you know, differently from when you work in a newspaper, for example, which in the end, you know, editors will tweak this and that, but the main thing will be yours. In Veja, it was not that much. The final product would be heavily editorialized, and sometimes you wouldn't agree much with the kind <laughs> of conclusion that, you know, the editors would draw from the kind of information that you had. And I mean, wow. from that, even when, even when it wasn't that editorialized, it was the overall the conversations in the newsroom that actually at some point got to you because a lot of weird things were said. <laughs> so were you looking to move on after about a year there? I was. I was definitely. Also because I was working quite a lot. And mm -hmm. in the end, all of this time, I was a freelance journalist in the sense because we have this thing in Brazil, which is a sort of fixed term freelance, which is I worked as a fixed term journalist, but I didn't have a fixed term contract. Oh, wow. Wow. which meant that I didn't have some of the benefits that a fixed-term employee does. So after one year working quite a lot, they they want, they want offered to hire me. But then I said, yeah, you know what? I, I can't really do this anymore. And the, in the end, they hired two people to do the work I was doing alone, <laughs> basically. Yeah. But yeah, so I was, I was working quite a lot. I didn't have much of a life. It's, it's quite draining. And sure. then I decided to move on. And, and did you already have something lined up? or where, what happened then? Yeah, I mean, I left I left Veja. I, I started working just as a freelance, really. I kept writing for Super Interessante. I actually won two awards with them. But oh, wow. then the Folha de São Paulo came up and they had they had opened a, uh, a job in the children's section. Okay. And, and Folha de São Paulo is the, uh, is it the largest newspaper? I'd say, yeah, so nowadays it's the largest newspaper. It would be like our New York Times, to be honest. Right. I think it's the closest that, that we get to the New York Times in terms of, you know, the kind of firepower they have and the, the weight really they have in the country. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I went to work for the children's section, which I loved as well. It was a great experience. My first editor was the, the woman who had basically created the children's section in Folha de São Paulo previously. She was my editor in Bahia. And oh, she wow. was, yeah. And she was that kind of person who believed in actual journalism for kids. There was no subject she wouldn't touch on. So yeah, it was it was great to be able to do that. It was quite freeing. It was and also when I started learning programming. To make like interactive to make it interactive. Project. At that point, we were doing this big project of mapping and cataloging how children played in Brazil in the sense of what their games and songs told us about what it was like to be a child, a child in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, what they were talking about, what they were singing about, uh, you know, how the plays reflected their reality. So we did this huge mapping. I actually traveled around, you know, parts of the country that I had never 
been to the west, sort of the center and the west of the country, our, what would be our Midwest, just basically talking to children and obviously the grown-ups around them, but getting to see those stories. And it was awesome. And we had to put this website on air. And we, I was the one who did the, the programming, really, the HTML programming for the website, reporting as well. So it was a lot of long nights. And uh, you were a freelancer? No, yeah, actually, I was a freelancer still. I was a freelancer for most of my life, to be honest, because this is how we work in Brazil. Right, and it only gets more and more common, I'm sure. Yeah, it was, again, a fixed-term freelancer thing. And through all this, I mean, are you making a decent living just out of curiosity? Is it easy to get by as a freelancer? At that point, first, I mean, I shared a flat with two friends, and we got very good prices. <laughs> so uh-huh. so in the end, I didn't spend that much on, on my living, and I lived well that was good but yeah most of it was okay i think i i got enough money to to make a living even though obviously my parents still chipped in once in a while it wasn't completely i wasn't completely independent i think Sure. Plus, sure. you're younger. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like a young person's hustle kind of. Um, yeah, it was 23, 24. So. You eventually end up at the BBC. How many more jumps did you make and how did you get there? Not that many. I left Folha de São Paulo and then I started, you know, I, I resumed being a freelance full time, actual freelance. Uh-huh. And I wrote for a lot of different magazines. Actually, I wrote for science, for a corporate magazine. Kept writing for Super Interessante, doing larger stories for them, science mm-hmm. stories or behavior, as we said. And then I wanted to do a course. I was just kind of fed up of the freelance life and I wanted to do a course on something. And then sure. I started looking for a, a good course that I could do. And I found this in Lebanon. I found this amazing course on politics and economy of the of the Middle East uh, given by journalists, British, American and Lebanese who worked in Beirut. And it was mm-hmm. a one month course in Beirut. And it wasn't so for I, a degree, obviously, or anything. No, it was just no, to gr- was just kind of to, grow as yeah. a to grow as a journalist, to work there, to, you know, understand what was going on, be able to produce better stories. So I went, basically. I I, I had some money and I and I paid for it and I went and it was one of the best experiences in my life. We talked to everyone, to Hamas, to the Hezbollah, to all all of the major politicians in Lebanon. It was, you know, to the UN, obviously, it was just this very, very interesting experience overall. And then, you know, I've always wanted to work for the BBC. And when I when I got back from Lebanon, there were like four or five openings. They had this major recruiting process. Okay, sure. So I went up there and did the whole the tests and the interviews and all of that. And I got in and I never left. (laughs) And this was you got in and it was a full time job. It was a full-time job, fixed term, no more freelancing. And yeah, and it was doing something that I really liked to do uh, in a company that I really believed in. So sure. it was quite a dream come true. Why, why the BBC? Why did you, had you always wanted to work there? 
I had because mostly because of the documentaries, right? Uh, okay, uh, it's sure. the BBC, so most of what got of what reached us in Brazil were the documentaries, were the nature documentaries. But I had this idea that you know whatever the BBC does, they do well. Either sure. it's radio or or TV shows or whatever, it's always well done. So this is something I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to work there. Gotcha. And so this was kind of your big break. What 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 you said you really liked what you were doing what did you have a beat or how how were you assigned we didn't have a beat yeah any of us because the team was small so it was basically mm-hmm. you know we write about anything and everything and and back then at that moment we were writing bbc brazil at least was writing a lot more about international you know what we say affairs current affairs and what was happening around the world which is something that i loved and i love to write about that so i got right into it and obviously once in a while when we found brazilian stories that we could and wanted to tell we would we would tell them but then i mean obviously around uh, over the years this has changed quite a lot we started writing more about brazil for brazil and also for the bbc in english which has been great as well to be honest so the thing about me in the bbc is that i was able to do a bit of everything which is i think the maybe the biggest dilemma in my professional life because i know that i think you make a name for yourself as a journalist when you start writing about one thing specifically right or you spend right. more time on a specific subject which makes sense you get to do the sources you get to know the people but in my trajectory i've always written a bit about everything right right which yeah. i mean which can be good at at one point i was like is this good or is this bad because i know that i can be thrown at anything i won't be afraid to get into something that i don't know but right, it's yeah. challenging i always think of it as kind of building up your toolbox you learn this and you learn that and kind of it's good to have a period where you're just kind of gathering tools and then you know once you know either something specific piece of news hits or sometimes you get lucky and it just comes up or sometimes you develop it out of more purposefully but once you yeah. decide to then focus in on something you have all, you have the tools you need to to do it Yeah and I mean this is the whole thing right people some don't associate your name with a, a specific subject if you haven't been just covering that specific subject but yeah and then gradually in the BBC I was I veered a, a lot more into science and health mainly health which is a subject I like there you go doctor parents <laughs> and you know so writing a bit more about that cool how how long were you there before you started writing uh, stories in english too i think one year and a half in i started writing in english as well because yeah i i got in in 2010 and then by 2012 i came to london to stay here for six months which then became eight uh oh, wow. to yeah to help the team with the coverage of the london olympics you know oh, okay. and to and to do a, a lot of stuff so i ended up working in some big projects for the entire world service and for english as well so yeah this is the thing about the bbc in the end is the company that invested in me the most because i learned to do radio to do tv all of it really inside the bbc that we had a lot of courses a lot of formation really and i'm i'm curious was it a daunting task to start to do it in a different language because i mean i've learned a couple languages now but I mean I can do interviews I can do this I can do that but I've never you know sat down and written a story that was actually for a professional publication in Chinese or in Portuguese <laughs> 
Um, was that daunting at first? To be honest, uh, not that much. I don't remember it as daunting in the sense that writing to English sometimes is easier because you're dealing with a different audience, an audience that knows less about your country and that sometimes also doesn't need that much detail. So sometimes it's a lot easier. Sure. It's, it's it's good sometimes writing in English so that we, as Brazilian, can have a different perspective of what is going on in our country. Because sometimes when you take out the detail, you can actually see the big picture. Otherwise, you get lost in the details, right? So you, you did a lot of different stuff for the BBC and you were in London for the Olympics and you came back to Brazil and now you're in London again. So maybe now is a good time to talk about a couple of specific um, stories you've done that you're proud of. So could you take a story you're proud of and tell me what it was and walk me through how you did it from start to finish? Yeah. I mean, I think the first one I would have to talk about was one I did while I was still in London, because after right after the Olympics, mm -hmm. I went on to the visual journalism team to do what was my first sort of big visual journalism and data project. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and back then, it was such a small team and we had very little resource. So we were then 2012. It was four years after the big, the big crisis, the big economic crisis. And I wanted to show what kind of professions were not affected by the crisis in terms of international migration, meaning you have people grow, going to one country, from one country to another country to work in highly skilled professions. And, mm -hmm. and those people actually did not feel the economic crisis that much. They kept traveling and they kept being able to get jobs in a lot of countries, even those heavily affected by the crisis. So I wanted to show that. Got this idea because you yourself were traveling exactly, to a different Exactly, as well, exactly. And we, I mean, we were talking a lot about migration and about, you know, how would Brazil be able to get skilled professionals and the kind of difficulty that you had. So I started thinking about who goes where to work on what. Mm -hmm. uh, my first idea was what kind of professionals do countries export and where do they go to? Sure. And then I started talking to, to investigators, to researchers, and the OECD, one, one researcher in the OECD told me, oh, honey, well, I hope you can do it because there are five groups of researchers around the world trying to do exactly that <laughs> at this moment with no success. Huh. So I was like, okay, so maybe that's not going to happen the way I thought it would. And so, so we shifted in the end. It was basically this long process of reading all the reports that I could find. So we shifted to which are the professionals that the countries actively look for, which means as, as, as you do in Canada, in the US, in the UK, Australia, many countries have this sort of list, right, of highly skilled professionals or even medium skilled that they're interested in hiring, uh, which help those people who want to migrate. So, so yeah, in the end, we shifted to what professions were countries looking for and their sort of migration lists. So, and still, I mean, that was quite doable uh, if you compare it to the previous task, which was clearly not doable at that point. But it was quite a hard task, actually, because back then, again, it was 2012. We had basically to choose the countries you were going to work with. So we chose the OECD countries, which was 34 countries. And then mm -hmm. obviously the BRICS, 
as we call them, right? Brazil, South Africa, India, China, Russia were not in the OECD. So we had to put the BRICS in as well, because it would make no sense to talk about this if you didn't talk about them. Sure. So it was most, it was basically 40 countries that I had to call one by one. <laughs> because, I mean, excluding, let's say, again, the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, which, you know, because they, because they usually have, apart from the US, but because they have point system migration, they already had their lists, you know, ready for us to download and, and check. But so that, by point system migration, you just mean like if you're a nuclear physicist, you get certain number of points and if you're exactly exactly that the reward you with a certain points different amount of points in different areas so if you know the language you get some points if you have a profession that's one of those in the list that they're looking for you get extra points etc so those ones had their lists ready apart from them no one almost no country did so it was calling around 35 countries calling their economics ministries their finance ministries and their work the labor ministries one by one and trying to get those lists some of them were sent to me and pdfs in finnish I got <laughs> emails in Polish with a list of professions. And I also found out that there is sort of a classification system of professions that, he, that is used around the world that was, you know, developed by the UN. But oh. some countries also have their own systems. So you had to check if the profession they were referring to was actually in the, the, the sort of global list so that I wouldn't be comparing different things. It took us four months to do that. The first month I basically came home home crying every day, <laughs> thinking, I do not know what I'm doing. But it was awesome, to be honest. I mean, the final result was great. We did this huge visualization about which professions were wanted. We translated it to like 11 languages. Wow. Seeing my work in like Burmese and, you know, <laughs> Chinese was just awesome. And in the end, the the Interior Ministry of England actually invited us to present our work in a conference they were going to have about migration statistics. Wow. So, yeah, awesome. so it was it was the UN. It was, the, you know, a bunch of national statistics organs and us basically presenting this work. And it was an amazing moment as well. I mean, it paid off, uh, obviously, in terms of views as well, it had quite a good amount of page views in, in English and Portuguese. We interviewed a lot of professionals as well. They migrated from one country to another highly skilled professionals, mind you, to understand what their experience was. So it was, yeah, it was quite interesting. It, was, it taught me so much and it, it taught me a lot about what I'm doing today, which is, you know, I've moved to London to work on a data and visual journalism team for the Americas. So sure. I think the seed in a way was planted there. That's great. That's awesome. Um, just to describe it a little bit, what, uh, what was the final product like? It was a beautiful, in my opinion, visualization of, you know, what were the 20 sort of most sought after professionals in the world. So you could, it was basically, you know, on one side professions on the other side countries, and you could sure. pick the profession or the country. 
if you pick the country, you'd see all of the professions which this country was looking for. And then, for example, if you picked Australia, you'd have a range of professions. And uh, professions. And if you picked Australia and civil engineer, then we would tell you what is what was the average salary for a civil engineer in Australia, and you know whatever information that we had about this profession in this country. Wow. And um yeah, it was quite good. and you and also there would be some information from talking to say a civil engineer who had migrated to Australia. Exactly, exactly. I can send you the link. The one in English is the best one at this point because the websites have changed quite a lot and even the one in Portuguese, the, you know, that page because we changed the system of publication, so the English one is the best. But yeah, gotcha. we did ha- we did talk to a bunch of professionals, like a Philippine nurse in the USA, a British doctor who worked in India, a Vietnamese IT engineer who worked in Norway, and you know Zimbabwean nurse who worked in the UK. Very cool. Very yeah, cool. it was it was it was really nice, and we did we did a bunch of stories on that. But it was a really nice project. It was I was super happy to do it. And I think let me see, I think the 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 other one I would talk about that I'm that I'm really proud of is the beginning of the coverage about the Zika epidemic in Brazil. Yeah, I definitely uh, wanna talk about that because actually the first time I became aware of you as a person that exists is when <laughs> Zika became a big thing. And Bibiana, my wife, would be like, oh, Camilla's on BBC and we would like watch a video with you in it. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I I mean, I didn't know you at that point, but uh, Bibiana was certainly excited to see you um, on the BBC talking about it. Yeah, this was a huge coverage. And yeah, that in the end we started in the in the BBC Brazil and obviously uh, were picked up by the by the English outlets because at one point, obviously, became clear that it was something big and everyone was interested. But the beginning of it was, it was basically this. I had seen a couple of small notes on magazines in Brazil. Uh-huh. Like, there is this thing, this Zika virus, weird dengue-like virus in the northeast of the country. And I had actually read that it, would, it was doctors in Bahia, because actually the Zika virus got in Brazil apparently via Bahia, or at least that was the first outbreak. So it was the doctors in Bahia that actually sort of discovered that this was the Zika virus. But that had been like 2014, right? A year before, this is 2015 that we're talking about. I start seeing small notes on magazines talking about this weird epidemic in the northeastern states. And, and then, this is this is when you're 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 back in Brazil living yeah, in Sao Paulo. Yeah, I'm already back in Brazil. Exactly, I got back to Brazil in 2013. So okay. you know there was the World Cup and all of that. But then, and since you're from you're from the Northeast, I assume you yeah. this also piqued your interest for that reason. Exactly. So I started reading those notes and some, you know, they started talking about malformations in babies or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I said to my editors, you know, this, this could be big. This could be a new, uh, how do you call them? Talidomide. Do you remember that? It was a drug that was sold to everyone, basically. It's something that really left a mark on me when I was growing up because I remember seeing the babies deformed by thalidomide. It was basically a drug that caused birth defects on children. Uh, And I mean, obviously, because back then in 
Still today, no one was testing those drugs. When pregnant women, it was a sedative. It was prescribed to anxiety, insomnia, gastritis. And it was also used against nausea and morning sickness in pregnant women. Oh, wow. And then, you know, and then people started realizing it was this around the 60s and 70s that it caused severe birth defects in children. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I remember growing up and reading about this and seeing the pictures. And I was like, oh, my God. So when I started seeing those notes, I was like, this could be big. And then I said, well, at that point, the main focus was not Bahia, right? It was Pernambuco, which is the neighbor state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have some friends in Pernambuco. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to talk to some doctors over there, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk to a friend of a friend who is a doctor who I know is a pediatrician who works with children. Let's see what she has to tell me. You know, back then I was just going to talk to a friend of a friend to see where I would go from there. But it was actually quite easy. She put me in touch with the main infectologist who was working with the children in the sort of ground zero of the discovery. Uh And it was just that easy because at that point, no one was talking about this. The main media outlets in the country are usually based, for those who don't know, are mostly based in the Southeast, right? In Sao Paulo and Rio, sometimes in Brasilia as well. So in the end, I think this sort of weird epidemics in the Northeast was kind of being treated, you know, as a faraway thing, as you would treat, I don't know, an Ebola outburst in Africa or, Uh you know, something weird, but that's a bit far, so... So no one had gone to this doctor who was in the epicenter of the thing, who had already seen by then Pernambuco already have over 800 notified cases of the Zika virus. This was just one month after those small notes started appearing in magazines. So no one had talked to this woman. And I just, you know, got the phone. They put me through to her. This was a large university hospital in Hesifi, which is the capital of Pernambuco, that mm-hmm. had basically concentrated the largest part of the babies born with malformations. And this, I mean, for people, I mean, who didn't follow this, you have to understand that the sort of the Zika epidemic started really in around March, April of 2015 in Pernambuco, right? In Bahia, it had happened one year before that already. But then in Pernambuco, it started in around March, April, uh, which mm-hmm. is sort of the rainy, when the rainy season starts in the Northeast. By October, obviously, the children started being born. The children of those women who caught Zika when they were pregnant, not knowing that it could affect their babies. No one knew. Uh, so then when those children, when, you know, they st- the doctors over there in Hesifi started getting more and more children with malformations, they were like, you know, all of a sudden there's 10 children in one week and then six children in the next one. What is going on? Right. So this is when they started realizing that something wasn't right. And so, yeah, so I talked to this pediatrician, infectologist as well. Uh, for those who don't know, this is what House, Dr. House did. <laughs> and um, so uh, Maria Angela Rocha and she painted me a picture of what was going on of you know what kind of malformations they were finding you know how severe they were what they knew about what was going on 
And, and at first, it was, the connection wasn't 100%. Did they already know at that point this is definitely being caused by these mosquitoes carrying Zika? Or they already so? had. They already had at that point established a connection. Obviously, there were still some tests to be made. But on the day-to-day basis and based on their research, this is, again, this is not just one doctor or two, right? They got together with the doctors from Bahia as well and from Paraíba, which was another state in the northeast that had been having cases. They got together and said, okay, we're having this. What is going on? And then you had, obviously, since those types of virus, like the Zika virus and the dengue virus, are tropical diseases, you had you have quite a, a good number of specialists in those diseases in Brazil. So they mm-hmm. got together and like, what is going on here? They started going around, you know, going to the literature that you had on this virus. Back then, they had established a connection. They already knew that those things had to be connected. Investigations were still going on. They are still going on, right? But they actually responded quite quickly, you know, to the kind of emergency that they were having. And I don't know, this was quite important to me. It was a story that had quite a lot of traction, obviously, quite a large number of page views. It allowed me to go on in this coverage to go to Pernambuco a bunch of times. Uh, so I think to, to me it was really important because we we put a spotlight on that. I don't think the newspapers were treating that as seriously as the situation deserved to be treated. I remember when I got to Pernambuco in December of that year, there were no other large outlets there. I mean, there were the local ones, but not not the huge, not the big ones. So you, you really broke this story wide open. You broke the story wide open at the, the national and international level. In a way, yes. Well, I like to think so, definitely. That's but I think in a way, yes. Uh, but I mean, it was there, you know, you had people reporting on it, but then it was becoming something big. And I don't think people were people were looking at it. So the first story you write, I imagine it's just, this is going on. It's a fairly straightforward story. Did you know how big it was going to get when you posted that already and how much attention it was going to get? The first story I wrote was actually this, when I talked to this doctor, it was basically her testimonial in a way of what was going on in her service, what she was seeing, what they knew, you know, the families and how are the children and what what kind of, of problems they could have in the long term. I thought this could get a lot of traction because I thought this was huge. All the rest came later. I mean, the, the seeing the families, the talking to scientists about the specifics of the disease, all of it came later. To be honest, I'm quite quite proud of that as well because the first aspect was the human aspect and obviously it would be hard and I would think a bit insensitive to try and talk to one of those families over the phone to begin with, especially right. because, and this I found out when I first went to Pernambuco, most of the times the mothers knew less than you did. So it was quite oh, wow. hard to go talk to them and say, you know, how is your kid? And and they would look at you sort of expecting you to tell them what was going on and if their kid was going to be all right. Oh, and wow. it was just super hard. Those were, Many of those mothers were really young. I met 16-year-old mothers. So I, it was great that the human aspect came first and with a doctor meaning this person who is in ground zero and who all of a sudden has to take care of 10, 16, 
20 babies with severe malformations that no one knows what is causing exactly and how can they help. I think I thought this was pretty dramatic and, and it also spoke a lot about science and investigation and the work that our doctors are actually doing in a country with the kind of issues that Brazil has. So I liked it. I, I, I thought it was a good way to, to get into this story and I think it was an important way as well. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to catch a story like that and to jump on it and do such a good job covering it from the start. And this also, I imagine, propelled you to new levels at the BBC. I mean, had you been going on TV for the BBC as much before this? I had done, but then I started doing a lot more because of that, and it definitely helped me. After that, they chose me to do a bilingual course, which means I was officially able to do bilingual reporting to be commissioned by the English to do stories for the English outlets first, which was great, obviously. And uh, so, yeah, it did help me a lot. I had done a lot of radio and some TV, especially during the World Cup in Brazil back then. So I had done some, okay. but this was definitely a new level, really, because I was, they wanted a lot. This was a story that everyone was interested in. There was a lot to talk about. So I, I did a lot. <laughs> and then came the, came the Olympics and then came the impeachment of former president Dilma Rousseff so it was quite non-stop wow yeah you've gotten a lot of a lot of big stories under your belt in your career <sighs> So yeah, congrats on uh, everything. Um, and now, so now you're living in London again, working on the interactive team. We already talked a little bit about what, you know, your week has been like, but what what is the day-to-day -day like there? What, what do you do on, say, an average day? Well, we're working with the entire scope of Latin American countries, right? So if you stretch it to the Caribbean, it's 24 countries speaking Spanish and Portuguese. So it is quite difficult because there's always breaking news. Uh, there's always something big happening somewhere. Uh -huh. And the, in those first few months, we have been trying to sort of respond to those news, which hasn't always been easy. But obviously, you had new governments in Mexico and in Brazil, which are quite big news. Uh, and then you had the mining dam the burst in Brumadinho, which also took up much of our time. It was a huge tragedy, one of the largest. Yeah, it killed nearly yeah. three or yeah, nearly three hundred people. people by the latest yeah. count. Yeah. So it was yeah, it was trying to get data angles on those stories, which is, is actually quite hard all the time. Again, because you're dealing with stories that have to interest most of the continent. Uh, and it's not always easy to find data. In the case of Brumadinho, because it was a big tragedy, there was already a lot of interest. And then obviously you had Venezuela. Venezuela has been in crisis basically for the past five years, six years. We were kind of used to a crisis in Venezuela, but then right. it reaches new levels all the time. And so we had to, you have to look for new angles, new ways of showing what is going on there. Obviously, we have people on the ground, which will give you the perspective of the day to day. But what is happening in the sort of big picture and right. finding mm -hmm. data about this is just incredibly hard. And then putting it together in a graphical, yeah. interactive way yeah. so people can more easily digest some of these sometimes very complicated. Exactly. That's a very good observation. I didn't even get there because, I mean, just so you see, finding the data itself is already hard, let alone putting it together in order to give people, a, a, you know, an interesting, insightful picture of what's going on as much as you can. So, for example, one of the angles that we managed to get about the Venezuela blackout was how mm -hmm. you saw it from space. 
Okay, interesting. Because obviously, I mean, it, it might, when you say it like this, it might look like it's not interesting. But when you see the images, it gives you an actual scale of what was from one day to the next, having almost an entire country in the dark, caught by a NASA satellite. Right. So it was quite crazy. But yeah, we're trying to, we're always trying to find the stories and get the different angles. So the day to day is mostly, it's a lot of report reading, a lot of Twitter to find out what's going on at any given time and what's everybody else doing. And a right. lot of report reading and email sending in order to get in touch with the researchers who are in possession of the, the kind of data that we're interested in. Sure. And very project driven. Uh, I mean, I imagine sometimes, yeah, the breaking news, you must have to run something out. Yeah, things get in the way of one another. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's never boring. Yeah, no, it, it it's like hard, but it's never stuff. boring. <laughs> Yeah, this has been great so far. And um, talking about you, you've had an amazing career. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit to something I've been calling the lightning round, which seems a little bit cheesy, but I haven't come up with a better name for it. Are you ready? Yeah. So uh, the first question is, what is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you get out your phone or your laptop? Twitter. Always Twitter. First thing I check. Which I shouldn't probably because it stresses <laughs> me out for the remains of my day. But so far I still can't help it because I'm, you know, I'm four hours ahead of Brazil and I keep having this feeling that I need to know what's going on there. Gotcha. And do you, you just use the phone app or do you have any specific barrier? Do you have a very tailored list or something like that? Most of the time I use my phone app, but I do have a tweet deck with an enormous amount of lists that sometimes <laughs> I open it up and I don't even know what I'm doing. And besides the BBC, what is a publication that you consider a must read that you look at almost every day? I look at the New York Times almost every day. I look at the Atlantic, to be honest almost every day because oh, wow. I love their art. I've, I've been enjoying their articles more and more, to be honest. And it's always mm -hmm. a very interesting perspective on, you know, either it's economics or politics or science. So I've been enjoying them quite a lot. Sometimes I get them and it's my reading when I get back from work. And then what is a publication you look at purely for fun? Lapham's Quarterly. Oh, really? Uh, What's that? Yes, I, I love Lapham's Quarterly. It's, a, it's an American magazine, actually. It's like a little book. It goes out four times a year. See, I've never held one in my hands, which is a shame. <laughs> I, I mostly read it via the website. Every issue that they publish has a theme, right? So this newest issue, for example, I'm seeing here, the spring 2019 issue is about trade. What they basically do is that they have this amazing curation of texts from, I don't know, ever, any time in, in history about this subject. So it could be a letter from a Persian king in the 12th century. It could be something that one of the founding fathers of the United States wrote about this subject. It could be uh, an essay about life and the Grand Bazaar of Turkey. I mean, it's awesome. This month, for example, this issue, they have this nice infographic about terms of sale, which is how some of the words that you have in English came borrowed from other languages along trade routes. So like whiskey, cotton, 
and in tea, ivory and tomato and stuff like that. They're always texts that bring you insight into what we've been and what we are, the way sometimes history repeats itself or the way sometimes we've been talking about some issues for as long as we've been a human society and where did we go from there. I, I actually found out about Les Pumps Quarterly because they had a podcast called Deja Vu, uh-huh. which is basically, uh, it was a website as well, that they got story from today, like, I don't know, yesterday, whatever, there was a story in the newspaper about prostitutes in London, something like that. They found, they managed to find the same story written almost in the same way 200 years ago. (laughs) I thought it was amazing. What they did was amazing. Wow, yeah, it's a name that kind of rings a bell, but honestly, I, I can't say I've ever looked at it. I'll have to check it out. It sounds great. Is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your work in any way? I think murder mysteries are probably the thing that I read the most about that is not involved in my day-to-day work. Sure, sure. I never, I never cover, I've never covered sort of police issues or big crimes or anything. It's completely out of my realm, but I, I'm fascinated by it. Do you get into like true crime stuff too? Oh yes, oh yes. Okay. I am, I true crime, fictitious crime, everything. Crime, just send it my way. Okay, these these questions, take them as you will. They're yes or no's. So the first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> this is a hard one. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes was with caveats, I would say. Okay, but what are your most of the time, caveats? yes. I think he does a very important job. And he's mostly looking at things few people are looking into. And I think his his work is very important. I think the caveats are mainly about his style. And it's hard to talk about this about a colleague. Yeah, his style. And I think sometimes the way he puts things is very us against them. So I think sometimes it it gets a little in the way of his work. I would say that. But I do admire what he does. Okay. And then next, uh, Vice Media. Yes or no? Oh, boy. It should be all yes with caveats. <laughs> um, <laughs> Vice media in general, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yes. Yes for Vice media in general. I think they, they sometimes do great stuff. It's a no for Vice magazine for me. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. You're, you're more into the TV and... Yeah I, li- yeah, I like their video production. I think it's very interesting. Okay. Um, WikiLeaks, yes or no? Oh, boy. Nowadays, no. I'm not sure what WikiLeaks is about nowadays. I'm not sure who they're working for or against, for that matter. I don't think it's very transparent. Sure. Ever since, especially the American elections, it left me with the impression that this tool that could be a very important tool to unearth a lot of stories that powerful people wanted hidden could have become, you know, a tool to skew results or to work in favor of someone. And I didn't like that. Next question. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Alan Little. Uh, He's a BBC journalist. He's covered everything, all kinds of conflicts that you can imagine. And Mm -hmm. he's done it all beautifully. He writes amazingly. I had a masterclass with him and one of one of the best experiences in my life. I would I mean, to be honest, I would say Marie Colvin. But the truth is that Marie Colvin had a very dangerous life. I think a lot more dangerous than what I could have handled. Uh, yeah. that, that would be a dead journalist, Marie Colvin. Alive, I would say Alan Little or 
or Christian Amanpour. Sure. So yeah, I just read Mary Colvin's biography of her, um, written by a UK journalist, and it, it was the great. An extremist. Very, yeah, yeah. I just exactly. bought it. I just bought it. I have to read it. Oh, you've got it. Yeah, I tore through it. Um, next question: What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? You know, if you really want to be a National Geographic, be a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that's the thing I was I would tell myself, just because I still feel that calling. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe know. it's not too late. Who knows? Well, this does feed into a, one of the next questions that I ask everybody. Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? And it sounds like scientist or. It, would definitely, yeah, I think a biologist or a primatologist or zoologist. I think it would have to do with animals. Um, and then what is your favorite film, book, TV or other media property about journalists and why? That I liked. Um, your favorite, yeah. It's hard. The one that I've loved the most recently was Spotlight. Okay, sure. Mo first, because it's something that I want to do. Uh, it's, I'm sort of veering towards that. Uh, mm -hmm. Second of all, because to be honest, I think it's the film that I've seen that has captured the essence of what we do day to day. And you know when? It's that first scene, the very first scene, when they are in the newsroom and they're saying goodbye to a colleague and they're eating cake uh -huh. and then they go back to their desks with the cake to keep working. Uh, when I saw that, I almost cried because I was like, this is our life. <laughs> eating cake and saying goodbye to the colleagues and getting back to the to the desk with cake because, I mean, at least you have cake. Right. <laughs> cake is the single most important thing in a newsroom. We're perfectly happy with cake. Uh, <laughs> Anytime. So I think this this to me was, this is real journalism. This is real life. Yeah, they nailed that part. Well, uh, I guess we'll stop here. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for taking so much time to talk to me. I loved it, actually. Thank you for inviting me. It's, honestly, I mean, it's been so nice. Hi again. That was my conversation with Camilla Costa. Thanks for listening to episode number three of Foreign Correspondence. I'll post some links to the things we talked about in the show in the podcast description, as well as links to Camilla's Twitter if you want to continue to follow her career. I'll also post those links on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a good rating and review. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. Please, 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 if you're going to do anything, recommend the podcast to a friend. Personal recommendations go the furthest. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for our next episode in two weeks on Sunday, June 30th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.